The New Testament reading can be found on page 1890 of the Church Bibles. The New Testament reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. Suffering for doing good. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Everybody, it's good to be back with you today. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the thought meditation of our, all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, let's get straight into the passage. And it starts with finally, or that's translated in some versions to sum up. So what is it that social uh, Peter is going to sum up this morning? And it's really that social code which we talked about when I was here earlier on, the social code which was a way the early Christians had of talking about their behavior. And that social code, if you remember, had the headline of submit, or was submit to one another. And my passage was submitting to human authority. And since then, you've heard about slaves submitting to masters and wives submitting to husbands. And Peter will go on and talk about the relationship between the elders, between the shepherds and the flock, the people of God. And that will be at the beginning of chapter 5. But he wants to sum up with where he's got to so far. So finally, all of you, or to sum up all of you, Peter, having spoken about the specifics of slaves and, and marriage relationships, now talks about the attitudes for all of us in all of our relationships. The sorts of attitudes that revolutionize relationships. And he does it in these five phrases or words. Live in harmony, be sympathetic, 
Love as brothers, be compassionate, be So let's start with the first of those, live in harmony. Now, I've got to tell you that nearly every translation of the Bible, from King James Version, which is a fairly old one, to the 2011 version of the NIV, uses the phrase, be like-minded, or of one mind. But let's stick with a moment for, with live in harmony, partly because that's what I was told to preach on anyhow. Um, but more importantly, because there's a rich picture in being in harmony, as we talked about already. Harmony, a musical term, I'm going to get this all wrong. It doesn't mean that everybody is singing the same note. Have I got that right? I've got an up, I've got thumbs up over there. But it does mean that everybody is singing the same tune. And that's very different, isn't it? And as I understand it, harmony is a kind of controlled tension. It's cooperation between different notes, cooperation in different volumes, and when it's done really nicely, and as it has done so far today, it's an offering of worship that is fine for God, a lovely sound. Now imagine some of the singers saying, I think I'm going to sing that bit of the tune now, I'm going to sing it later. Or I think my bit's most important, so I'm going to sing it really loud and drown out everybody else. What's that going to sound like? Pretty awful, I think. I think the word is cacophony. Each of us is actually unique. And as Christians, we're all called to unity. But that isn't the same as uniformity. We are called to sing the same tune. We're not all called to sing the same note. Being one in the Lord doesn't mean that we're going to be the same, look the same, have the same abilities or the same likes or dislikes. Our individuality is part of the gift of God who made us just as we are. But actually, musical harmony needs cooperation. Harmony in community also needs cooperation. In fact, it's a choice how you're going to sing, how you're going to live in harmony in, 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 in a community is a choice. But it's an important choice with important consequences. If we who claim to follow Christ that live out of harmony with one another, then it sends the message that, well, it doesn't really matter very much. God says he's going to change you and transform you, but actually it doesn't really happen because we can still be the same selfish people who want to go and do our own thing as we did beforehand. We make a choice whether we want to live in harmony with one another, just as singers make a choice about what's going to come out of their mouth. But to be free to make a choice actually involves self-discipline, because otherwise you find your choices are actually constrained by the influences and pressures around about us, and it's that that's, course, that's dictating our courses of action, not our own choice. So how do we grow 
in self-discipline. Dare I say it in a place like this, that actually it may be something to do with ritual. I had a sight test the, um, the other week, and it turned out my optician was a Coptic Orthodox Christian. And we talked about discipline. We talked about the discipline of a Coptic Christian's life, which was church fasting, because there's lots of fasting in, in the Coptic church. We're not very good at that in the Anglican church. We're good at harvest suppers. But are we good at fasting? But they were. But maybe that's not the discipline, not the ritual we need to worry about. I have to say for me, my ritual, the thing that gives me some sort of discipline in my life, is morning prayer. And when I was up in Norfolk, we used to go to, I actually had five churches, it was very convenient, one for each day of the week and one for day off. Um, so I actually used to go and say morning prayer in the church, uh, you know, on autumn day like this of the week. And sometimes, I mean, beautiful autumn day like this, hop on the bicycle and you could cycle through the um, countryside and it's lovely in the autumn because the farmers are all tidying it all up and making it look neat and tidy and, and ready for the winter. And often there'll be a skein of geese would be acting as a kind of shotgun for me as I pedal through the, sights, the, the sunshine and I turn up in church and my heart will be bursting with praise and there'll be at least one other person there and we'd say morning prayer together and that's great. Not always. Sometimes I would turn up at church and I wouldn't want to be there. Things are going wrong, I'm not feeling well or whatever it is, or I'm particularly busy, and you turn up there, and practically all I had to offer God was, well, at least I'm here, God. Sometimes I have to tell you, don't tell the bishop, it's like that even on a Sunday morning. I've turned up at church and thought, I really don't want to be here. I've got absolutely nothing to offer except I'm here. Had that happened all the time, I think the bishop would have been involved. But for us, sometimes that happens, doesn't it? You know, everything's going wrong and, oh, did I, did I turn the oven down or did I put the oven on and all that sort of stuff. And actually, all we can offer is the fact we're here. And that's part of our discipline, isn't it? That's part of our routine. And that actually, surprisingly enough, if you're there, God's always there. And sometimes what, how you walk in through the door and how you walk out is totally different. But that's part of the, just being there and, and being part of the discipline. But that might be different for you. But how are you growing in discipline? The sort of discipline, the self-discipline we need that actually enables us to make our own choices freely. So there we are, live in harmony or be like-minded. The second attitude is about being sympathetic. It's not just about making the same sound, but it's also being of the same heart, feeling together. That's what sympathetic means, feeling together. And are we affected by the joy or the sadness of the things that happens to our brothers and sisters? 
again, I, I'm a bit sort of on the traditional side of liturgy, and I'm used to actually saying the, 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 sh the short, short um, commandments every Sunday. You love God and you love your neighbor. Again, they can just be words. But we need to remember that's a commandment that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We're sympathetic. We're like-minded. Our heart beats with theirs. And what about the practical love we should offer for our brothers and sisters who live in different situations of poverty or need under oppression or experiencing persecution? Sympathetic, our hearts beating with others. And then loving one another as brothers. I'm sure you know that for the one word in English, love, um, there are four different words in the Greek. And the word Peter uses here is not agape, the unconditional altruistic love which God has for us, but philadelphos, the brotherly love that you find in a family. And you can go into a family, can't you? And they can be shouting at each other and, you know, having a bit of a go and all that. But right underneath it, you just feel, boy, these guys, they look out for each other, don't they? They're not the same. They're different. You know, they, they can, you know, throw a plate around or two. But at the heart of it, they're there for one another because they genuinely care. Well, that's the sort of love that people coming into a church ought to see amongst us. Yeah, we're different. Yeah, we have our ups and downs. We have our funny moments. But at the heart of it, we actually care for one another. And then perhaps deeper than sympathy is compassion. Literally suffering with. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. You know, often it's not in our power to change other people's circumstances. But we can be compassionate. And Tina was talking about that a moment ago, wasn't she? It's actually hard to read about the suffering of other Christians. That's a costly place to be, a difficult place to be. But we need to be there so that we, in some way, can share in their suffering and transforming it. So there's not going to be a single copy of Voice left over today because you all need to take one home. Whether you want to read it or not is not the issue. It's whether we need to read it so we understand what our sisters and brothers are going through. And then finally, humble. Now, humility isn't about being a doormat. It's not about thinking we're failures or rubbish. But it, what it is about is having a realistic understanding of who we are. We are those who know that there's at least a small part, or maybe a big part of us, which is really unlovely. We know that because we know ourselves. Yet, we are deeply, deeply loved by God. We know there is sinfulness in our lives. We know that because we know about ourselves. Yet, we're forgiven and transformed by God. There was um, somebody, 
I had a word with me about their boss, actually, when I was in Norfolk. And in a good Norfolk voice, they said, when it comes to his headstone, they'll say on it, never said please, never said thank you, never said sorry. And there are people like that, aren't there? You know people like that, who just sort of just bulldoze their way through life, actually not noticing other people who they're sort of crushing as they go past. Christians are always thankful, are always thankful for God's mercy to us, always asking for God's forgiveness on one another. At my ritual the other day, we read Psalm 19. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins, lest they get dominion over me. So shall I be undefiled and innocent of great offense. The presumptuous sins that actually don't notice that we're being sinful. Now we can look at today's politicians and we see the way politicians operate, it seems now, is you get lots of sycophants around you and they're all massaging you and telling you how wonderful you are and you begin to assume that you never make mistakes and it doesn't really matter and even if you do, it doesn't matter. You can say what you like because clearly what I need to do is much more important than truth or maybe I've forgotten what lying is like because presumptuous sins have got dominion over me. And we can behave how we like. Not expecting the rest of the country to see what we do and then say, well, it's okay. I've got permission to be rude to people and shout at people. Goodness me, the politicians do it. Wonderful. So we can actually look at the politicians when we think about humility and we can actually point the finger at them, can't we? But when you point a finger at one person, there's one, two, three pointing back at you. And we're all in that position where we can let our hearts take over. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And part of our humility is actually to have this realistic understanding of who we are and actually being in a sort of community where we can actually speak truth to one another. Some people think a Christian community is all about being nice. I think being nice is probably the death of a Christian community. It's actually being honest and truthful and upbuilding of one another. And part of that is enabling us to have a realistic understanding of who we are. And that's not easy. That's hard. But we have to do it because we're called to be humble. Well, Peter then goes beyond the kind of submit and all these um, attitudes to what we have to do. And he says, we have to repay evil and insults with blessing. Or as Eugene Peterson puts in, in lovely in, in the message, bless, that's your job, to bless. 
Bless, that's your job to bless. I like that, don't you? You'll be, blessed, you'll be a blessing and you'll also get a blessing. As we repay evil with blessing, we inherit a blessing by blessing others. Or in that delightful contemporary stage, what goes round comes round. And if we're those who bless, we will receive a blessing. Well, Peter then goes on for a couple of verses, uh, quoting Psalm 34, which is a kind of backup to all that he's been saying. So I'm just going to slip past those. Because the NIV, as we heard at the beginning of the reading, the NIV's title of this whole passage is Suffering for Good. And from verse 13 onwards in this passage, Peter is going to talk about that suffering for doing good. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. When I was a teenager, the big um, enemy was communism. And it was the days of Brother Andrew and smuggling behind the Iron Curtain. Since then, and the voice will tell you all about this, of course. Since then, we're aware of the suffering of Christians in many places, sometimes through poverty, sometimes through the effects of climate change or natural disasters, sometimes through persecution of an oppressive sectarian regime. And we can think of Palestine, Iraq, Nigeria, Egypt, you know, the list just goes on and on. When suffering comes we have to make a choice. Because often we can't actually change what's happening, but we can change our attitude to it. And Matt Redman is the verse for this, isn't he? Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. We can't change circumstances, but we can change our response. So how we respond to suffering is a choice. And I suppose the commentary on this really is Daniel 3, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, set up gold statues and decreed that when the music was played, everyone would bow down and worship. And this gave three men who were exiled from Israel an issue, and they refused to do it. They were dubbed in by their enemies and taken before an incandescent Nebuchadnezzar, who gives them one last chance to back, back down and kneel before the golden statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we need not defend ourselves in, before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
they were bound before the most powerful man in the world. That wasn't going to change. However much the prayer meeting was going on, that wasn't going to change. But their choice was, even if he does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the gold image of gold you have set up. Whether we suffer or not is out of our control. But how we respond to it, that's our choice. And there's a kind of um, sort of theme, isn't there, that we're entitled to a world that's without problem and, you know, we're Christians for goodness sake, so God is going to bless us and it will be kind. In any case, if anything does go wrong, there's always the national health and that will sort us out. You know, there's that sort of, you know, we're owed this. We're owed a, a good life. It's not ever promised anywhere. And often we're brought to places where there are choices to be made that are costly. Well, we're nearly at the end of our passage. Let me talk about evangelism. Now, sitting before me this morning are those who are gifted evangelists. Someone has said it's about 5 to 10%. So there's quite a few of you there, if that's right. I don't know how you find that out, it's 5 to 10%. Also sitting before me this morning are some people, I'm kind of guessing, who when I said, we'll talk about evangelism, went, cringe. I don't like that, because I kind of got this feeling I ought to be doing it, and I find that really difficult, and I don't like it. There's just one or two people nodding, the others are rigid still. (laughs) The problem is, that if you read a book on evangelism or go to a course about evangelism, it is usually done by an evangelist. So they're actually talking about from their gifting. Here is a word about our evangelism. To all of us, remember this passage, how it started? Finally, all of you. So we're still in that bit where Peter is is talking to all of us. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give you the reason for the hope you have. I'm sure evangelists do that, but that's for all of us. I wonder, in about five or six phrases or sentences, could you tell me the reason the hope you have within you. Because you should always be prepared for that. It might even be a vicar who asks you. And that's our story, isn't it? That's what God's done for us. It's not difficult because it's happened to us. We maybe just need to think it through and think, well, how could I tell somebody that little story? By the way, it shouldn't include the word church, really. Because actually... People out there haven't a clue what goes on in here. Um, My wife just worked in a a school library service, which is just ordinary secular employment. And 
she kept my feet well on the ground because it's not that anybody in that place of her work was antagonistic to her. It's just they didn't understand. It was just totally irrelevant. Church? What's that? I've heard of it. Don't know anything about it. They were totally shocked when they found I had to work on Christmas Day. What? Your husband works on Christmas Day? It was just because it was not, they didn't know. So don't mention church in it. And notice, this is an answer. An answer presupposes you've been asked. Nobody's asking you to ram this down somebody's face. But this is about how, if somebody does ask, that you're ready to give an answer. And this is all in this passage about suffering. And I'm kind of guessing that if we actually respond to suffering um, in the way that we've been talking about, that that might be something that raises all sorts of questions in people's minds. And they want to know why you are like you are. And then the question comes. A question which you answer with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Other people are responsible for their behavior. We make the choice that actually we're going to keep a clear conscience so that even though they may speak maliciously, they may be shamed of their slander. There's kind of a word that's sort of crept through most of what I've been saying this morning, and that's actually choice. There's nothing I've said that's actually complicated. It's not high-flying theology. It's not difficult. Um, it doesn't matter whether you don't know any Greek or Hebrew or whatever. There's nothing about that. It's actually all about choices that we make that are reverence God. And I'm reminded about Mark Twain. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. And so may God bless us in our behavior, in our attitudes, and in our choices. Amen.